Welcome to Two Arabs and a Podcast. A show with no limits. Dating, business, martial arts, self-defense, and the life of two Arabs in America. Arabs in America. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your hosts. The owner of Warrior Academy, the son of an immigrant, international traveler, black rank in Krav Maga, a jiu-jitsu practitioner, and Brazil's national champion. And of course, 2018 Self-Defense Instructor of the Year, a bodyguard and military combative instructors, none other than Fraz Azar. Joined by his co-host, Omar Aswan, the owner of Warrior Tactical Training, published author, doctor of criminology, world traveler, fluent in four languages, a military combat contractor, and a first-generation immigrant. The show begins now. Welcome to another episode of Two Arabs in a Podcast. My, I'm Omar Aswed. I'm joined by Faraz Azab. And today we have a very special podcast for you. Um, I hope you enjoyed the last podcast and left us a good review of uh, how what he thought of the podcast. Faraz, how's it going today? Very good. Uh, um, I was very uh, delighted about the reaction we had from the last podcast. I had a couple of nice comments and some surprising comments, of course. But uh, <laughs> especially about the pictures we posted, do you know so-and-so is an Arab? The, the funny thing that I had just one comment I want to make is about Shakir. She's Colombian. She's Colombian. And people want to fight with me. I was like, do you know that her father is Lebanese? I was like, I know she's Colombian. I'll say I'm American, but my she's father's 50, 50. <laughs> yeah. So that was funny. I, I guess hips don't lie. Yeah. So uh, today we have a very special person that we're honored to have him join us. And uh, we're interviewing the great Nick Hughes. Um, How is it going today? Good. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, uh, Nick is very well known. And uh, for some of you that do not know his background, he is a former French legionnaire, uh, also black belted in multiple uh, martial arts, three, um, an author of one of the best self-defense books and one of the books that I highly recommend, How to Be Your Own Bodyguard. And uh, what did I forget beside that? He has a long resume. Oh, yeah. I will leave all that resume. Plus, he's my coach. I mean, he's your coach's coach. Of course. <laughs> First of all, we want to. Um, uh, thank Nick for coming up here. Um, for Nick is in Kansas City because Nick comes in and runs a seminar once or twice a year. Plus, my academy, Warriors Academy, is actually, I would say, not just founded by me, but is actually with Nick Hughes. I joined Nick, called Nick, well, how many years ago? It's going to be six or seven. Right? Six or seven we launched Warriors Craft. I've met Nick, actually, beyond that. Uh, back, uh, actually, I told you about this story, Omar, but uh, maybe I'm talking about 15 years ago. It was in in the in Kansas City Lee Summit. There was a seminar called The Three Dragons, and I was just here just doing grappling and um, freestyling stuff and MMA, and Boss Rutan was in town. And I was interested to see him. I didn't hear about of Nick at that time. And then as I'm going there, so I said, oh, they were talking about Krav It was just the rise of Krav Maga and all that. Plus me being training in different martial arts, especially Muay Thai and just grappling. I was like, screw this, this Krav crap. Because I've seen some stuff online. I mean, even with the bad internet we had there, just the videos and stuff, I was just not a big fan of it. Um, other than it was famous because of Jennifer Lopez, the movie Enough. So anyway, I went to that seminar, um, saw there was Hawk Hawkheim. There was another guy named McCann. He was doing the catch. Uh, what's his Jim name? McCann. Jim McCann. Right. So that caught my attention. He's a great, actually. Yeah. Um, owner of a Primal Gym, is it? Mm-hmm. Primal yeah. Gym in New Jersey. And Tim Tackett was there. Yeah. So what happened is, first of all, Nick comes in. So you're talking about first was like a giant. And I was like, <laughs> who's this guy? But he did something that caught my attention was his uh, part was about the multiples. And I was like, this is interesting. And I, at first I heard him talk about it, which was interesting to me. And I was like, what is this multiple this guy talking about? This is like Bruce Lee bullshit. But then he broke it down and I got interested more in it. And of course it was a beat down as always when Nick puts a good seminar. Then he crept behind me and spoke to me in Arabic. And I was like, the fuck this guy is. <laughs> so then he introduced himself and he said, I'm Australian. I was like, really? I was like, you spoke good Arabic. Then he told me about him being a bodyguard. Uh, he worked for the Royal Saudi family. And then we connected from there. And that was like, God, 15, 15 years ago. Yeah, yep. 
so after that, you know, I connected more with Nick and I started following up with him and just always kept in touch, kept in touch. And I was working with this gym that was teaching craft and didn't like how things went with them. And just when I, that time, that's when I got fired and quit that job. And I just hooked up more with Nick and trained more with him. And here we are. Warriors Academy, Warriors Croft, taking over. Well established. Yep. So how long uh, have you had the Warrior Croft? Uh, as a as a label or as a gym? Yeah, not actually that long. What happened was I started in Australia back in, I was born at a very early age, so I'm old. And I started pre-Bruce Lee, so that'll tell you how long ago I started martial arts at a school judo club. And karate hadn't come out yet. Then we had a taekwondo club popped up. I crossed training with the wrestling club and the boxing club at school. Taekwondo turns up in school, started doing that. It, none of it was working for me. The techniques were good but there was no application. So the tactics and the applying the techniques that we were learning was non-existent. My brother had hooked up with a guy called Bob Jones and he was running a hybrid form of Goju Karate. And Jones was interesting, uh, very charismatic, like a David Koresh almost, and that he can have people eating out of the palm of his hands very quickly. And he ran karate for self-defense. So they tied up security in every single nightclub in Australia. They looked after all the major rock and roll bands coming to the country. And I started training with him, my brother initially, and then he got me into it. And everything suddenly gelled. All of the techniques I'd been learning, now it made sense, and now I learned how to apply them. And I started working on nightclub doors at 16 through their security company. And it was great because it's a practical testing ground. You're in a dojo literally at seven o'clock learning how to do a front kick. And at 9.30, you're kicking someone with the front kick in a bar fight. And you find out very quickly how to, how to apply it, how to make it work, whether it works like they said it would on the tin. And so I got a lot of really really, really, really good hands-on experience. Uh, wanted to take the bodyguarding to the security to the next level and wanted to become a bodyguard. And in Australia at that point in time, we did not have any bodyguards. Even the prime minister ran around with an old retired cop, one looking after him. So everyone said, you want to do that, you're going to have to go to England or America. So my grandparents were English. It was easier for me to get into England. I went over there, ran into these agencies that do security. And they all said the same thing. You've got to have special forces experience. And and I could have joined the British Army at that point in time, being a member of the Commonwealth, but the British Army serves in Northern Ireland, Germany, England, uh, Norway, all these freezing cold places. And the Legion is in Tahiti, South America, South of France and Africa. And I went, yeah, that's for me. I like the heat. So I did my five years with the Legion, got out, worked for bodyguard agencies all over Europe, looked after many of the Saudi princes coming into London, which they used to do. And I've lived and worked in 26 countries doing that as a job and I ended up in the States and I started doing martial arts again and after 9-11 we got hammered with requests for people who traditional karate didn't interest them because they didn't want to spend five years getting a black belt. They said, you know, we're flying next week. We've seen what can happen. We need something that's fast. And so I initially went back to my antecedents in military unarmed combat, which I'd been teaching in the Legion. And that was good because it's a fast program. The military unarmed combat takes all the traditional martial arts, puts them into this filter. And the filter is, can I teach the technique to the least coordinated recruit in the group? Can I teach it in 30 minutes or less? And will it work if we go to war tonight? And when you take, when you apply that, things like jumping, spinning back kicks, of course, go out the window. Can't teach it in less than 30 minutes. Requires a certain amount of athleticism. So we end up with headbutts, elbows, knees, biting, sticking your finger in someone's eyes. It's all simple stuff. And so I started teaching that and it was going okay, but Krav had come down the pipeline and obviously with their marketing, which is very slick, and the movie with Jennifer Lopez, uh, a lot of people wanted to jump on the Krav bandwagon. And my stuff, I was calling it Fist, which stood for Fight Survival Training. And it That's was the Legion. The yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of Americans didn't know what the Legion was. The only familiarity they have, if any at all, was the old uh, Abbott and Costello movies with them running around with the Kepis on. And so I realized if I was going to market this and make it viable, I had to be doing Krav, which is pretty much essentially the same thing. All, all military martial arts are pretty much the same because they all use those same three filters. And I had a good friend of mine, Ernie Kirk, was originally with Krav Worldwide and he'd had a falling out with them and broke away. So I got certified with him uh, because he gave me the leeway to incorporate some of my own stuff. I didn't agree with the way World, uh, Krav Worldwide was doing some of their stuff. It's uh, some is good, some is not good. 
and I wasn't comfortable being forced to teach something that I didn't think would work. So Ernie and I got certified under him and uh, then we went our separate ways and I came up with Warriors. And our big difference, I think, with all the other guys is, and I'm getting away from your question as to how long we've been doing it, but we've incorporated soft skills uh, and the legal ramifications of doing the technique, which a lot of these guys have, you know, ignore completely, uh, which I have a problem with. Again, I think you're not teaching a full program if you don't do that. So the actual switch over to cryo came in, I think probably around 2009, 2010, somewhere around there when we labeled it Warriors Crave. I'm, I want to say something actually also what actually me is experienced why I, you know, went allegiance with Nick. Um, a lot of these guys that I went to check out, I'm not going to speak against them or anything, but I'm saying a lot of them have zero military background. Legitly, there's no, if you go find right now, any of these craft founders or whatever, nobody military background. Um, not real, any fighting, because when you say fighting, everybody thinks, oh, you got to be like, yeah, we've done sports. We've done all that. A lot of us in this organization come also from bodyguard. It's not just bouncing. Everybody said bouncing. Well, there's a difference. Me throwing out drunks on that. You've been bouncing. You've yeah. been a prison guard. I've been the same. I mean, Nick, you know, I'm the, so the difference big time that I also point out is the real life skills when it comes from military unarmed combat. I mean, you even see uh, our good friend, Kelly McCann. Of course, yeah. yeah. With him in the combat uh, uh, program. And he also gave credit to Nick when Nick started talking about involving uh, gun disarms in the civilian sector. <laughs> so, and, <coughs> excuse me. And that's actually what you, Omar, when you came in to me, you talked at first. I think when you walked in my intro, and I think what caught your attention when I started talking about the legal ramification, I noticed you spotted a lot of that stuff because I felt you were coming in to test me when you we first when you walked in. Yeah, I think I think a lot of places uh, right now, whether in martial arts or even with guns, mm -hmm. they are just teaching you from the minute the shit hits the fan. And they forget the nine minutes prior to that and the 30 years in front of that where you're going to deal with courts and felonies and self mm -hmm. uh, and all these uh, attorneys showing up to court. They forget about that and they forget about the soft skills that before that. So that's why I was very interested and intrigued by the organization. Uh, but Nick, back going to your question, I'm curious, what makes the French Legionnaire special? A lot of the listeners might not even know what the French Legionnaire is. All right. So if the French Foreign Legion was an army of foreigners set up by King Louis Philippe back in the 18th. 30s. And what happened is France, like all of the countries in the world, England was establishing its empire. Uh, the Dutch had gone into Africa. The Portuguese have taken over parts of Africa. The French were there. Uh, Portuguese, of course, had gone to Brazil. The Spaniards had gone to Mexico and South, the rest of South America. So all these, all these European countries were establishing themselves all around the world. And the French were in Algeria. Um, they're in Madagascar. They're all over the place. And a lot of their troops were being wiped out by malaria, which they didn't, and they hadn't even identified. They didn't know what it was. And then the wars and being attacked by the natives was taking out another bunch. And very, very similar to World War One, they'd actually run out of able-bodied young men that they could send off to be soldiers. And King Louis very cleverly said, we will take soldiers, we'll take foreigners and put them into our army and they'll fight for us. And everyone's like, well, what's the motivation? And he said, we'll take anyone in the world who's able to fight, no matter what their background, we will give them another chance. And so uh, murderers, rapists, criminals, guys on the run, people who got chicks pregnant, wanted for alimony, whatever. Anyone that had got in trouble anywhere in the world heard about this bolt hole and turned up. And the deal was they'd ask no questions. And if you made it through a five-year contract and were still alive at the end, which was very rare in those days, you were granted French citizenship. And it continued. And it's still continuing to this day. Now, back in about the 60s, um, Interpol and the Legion started working hand in glove because we reached a point with warfare. You needed a certain level of intelligence or lack of intelligence in the old days because you were doing bayonet charges into machine gun posts and so on. And then warfare became more sophisticated. Now you have stuff, you've got soldiers out there operating, tracking satellites and flying drones overhead over battles. They're rel relaying that information back in real time. You've got weapons guidance systems that require a certain degree of intelligence to operate. Everything's coordinated on the battlefield. And so you need a more intelligent soldier to do that. And this need for absolutely anyone to show up went out the window. We also had massive unemployment at various times. And so the Legion could become more selective and it did so. So it began working hand in glove with Interpol. And if you turned up nowadays and you're a murderer or you're a rapist, you've done drugs, embezzlement, any, 
you know, class A felony, you're not getting in and they will in fact turn you over to Interpol and you'll be arrested. Uh, but they will still take petty criminals, you know, so in France, it's still very much a thing in court. You get arrested for stealing a car, for example, and the judge will say, well, you can do three years in prison or you can go and join the Legion, which a lot of countries used to do. You know, young men got into trouble and the judge would offer him a chance. It's like, go to jail or go join the military and let the military straighten you out. So the Legion still exists. There's roughly 1,500 people a month try and join. They take about 30. They're made up of roughly 11,000 troops. Uh, they're scattered all over the world. We have units in France. We have them in Corsica. We have them in Africa, Tahiti down in South America at the aerospatial missile launch site providing security. They have different specialties. We have an airborne unit that I was in, the parachute regiment, which is in Corsica. Uh, we have infantry units in France. We've got various units all over the place. They all have different specialties. Some are, are, are light armor, some are regular ground troops, some are paratroopers. The parachute regiment is split into an amphibious section, a mountaineering section, sabotage, demolition, uh, night combat, anti-tanks, and so on. And we are there at the behest of the French government. If there's any trouble anywhere in the world, they very cleverly send the Legion. Now, if you look at Vietnam, it's a, ca a classic case in point. The American loss of will to continue that fight was because Americans back here were losing their sons in a combat on the other side of the world that no one really understood what was going on. So there's massive pressure applied to this government to stop killing our kids over this bullshit. And with the Legion, what happens is the French government sends a bunch of foreigners off to fight. And if they get killed, no one gives a shit. So it's a very clever system. And in fact, right now, the Legion just jumped a couple of weeks ago into Mali, a uh, big fight going on over there against Boko Haram. And that is the Legion. Those, so when you see the news reporting French troops jumping into Mali, it's actually Legionnaires jumping into Mali that are fighting on the ground over there. So an army essentially made up of foreigners run by the French government to do their fighting for them. And it's still around to this day. Impressive. So, of course, with any person listening, we had a question earlier, and it's a good question. With somebody listening to your background and watching uh, all of the expertise that you have, might feel intimidated to start showing up to a gym and training. So how do they get started into self-defense or even shooting uh, if they have no background or no expertise and they feel intimidated by other people so much ahead of them? The way we get around it is I have an introductory class that I run at my school once a month. And that way you're not walking. It is very hard when you're a brand new beginner and you're already afraid of your own shadow, which is why you're deciding I want to learn self-defense. And then you're going to walk into a self-defense school full of all these macho guys running around beating the crap out of each other. It is very intimidating and we probably lose potential students because they're too afraid to step their foot over that door. Our way around that is once a month we offer this free introductory class. And and it's on this in our club. It's this second Saturday of every month. And the idea is everybody comes in there at one time. So you're sitting in the room with me with 25 other brand new raw beginners. And we take you through this process where we explain what we do, why we do it, why we're different to the other organizations, five essential elements of a good self-defense instructor and what you should be looking at. If you're there kicking our tires and you're going to go down the road to the local Taekwondo school and check them out, these are the questions you should be asking. It takes about a two and a half hour process we give them a sample class and a sample workout and at the end of it we had about 80% of them sign up about 20% decide it's not for them and move on and check out something else but that's the best single way I have found to get a brand new beginner across that threshold into the group is bring them in with a group of other people who are also you know birds of a feather flock together so if you get a bunch of people that are intimidated and they can come as a group they feel a lot better than if they just walk in there on their own and that's how you signed up yeah. I mean that's yeah. Yeah, that's how we that's run things works yeah yeah it's a good way um and just showing up for the intro i feel like a lot of people have have that fear is like i don't want to show up but showing up to an intro might mm -hmm. take away of those fears so just you know giving it a try uh so we had a lot of questions so i do apologize if we don't get to all these questions but we had some random questions so what's for example favorite movie <laughs> See, that's not uh, bad. I had stupid questions. I'm not going to even ask. Uh, uh, wow. Favorite movie. Um, mate, I'm like every man out there. I think Shawshank Redemption's got to be on the list. First Blood, Enter the Dragon, uh, Thomas Crown Affair. I mean, i got a bunch of them. But any of those, they're all good. Favorite country that you visited or lived in? Oh, America, hands down. Hands down. Yeah, I like Australia still yeah. a lot. Um, I really, really, really love Djibouti. And it's true what they say when 
when you go to Africa, you'll always have a part of you that wants to go back. But I love America. I really do. Out of all the places I've been, still my favorite. That's, that's kind of what we talk about. And they still exactly. accuse us. You foreigners. Foreigners <laughs> who show up and we love the. I just wish Americans appreciated what they have. That's the, that's the biggest thing that frustrates me. I would like to see in this country take all these 16 and 17 year old American whining crybabies, make them leave the country, go work in some third world shithole for a year and then come back. And they would come down the steps off the plane. They would kiss the tarmac and they would start realizing what a wonderful place they have instead of bitching about it all the time. They have no idea. Uh, actually, if you look at the theme of our, the name of our podcast, Two Arab in a Podcast, and we're talking about us, us being two Arab Americans yep. living here. Yep. We, like the last podcast I had so many uh, comments about you guys are more patriotic than people here yeah. I was like, you know, it's not about patriotic we appreciate it. it's just yes. like what you said go to a shithole third world country like when they all tell us like oh you guys come here and I was like you don't understand the level of appreciation we come here well I, and I don't want to get sidetracked on this but I'm also a huge fan of personal development achieving maximum potential and getting very very rich and we talk in those circles the Jim Rohns Tony Robbins all that stuff we talk in those circles about the immigrant mindset and if you look at the immigrants that come here, usually within one generation, they're all millionaires. You look at all the Asians, the Patel family, a lot of people don't realize this. The Indian Patels, that's not actually a name. It's an area in India that they came from. And they got here in the 70s when they were kicked out of Uganda. And they now own about $340 billion worth of hotel properties across the country. And they have their own book on how to get rich. And they dive in, the whole family works together and they work long hours. And they all do this. And the same with the Asians. Watch them running the Chinese food restaurant. You'll go in there, the eight-year-old kid's behind the desk doing his homework until a customer runs in, then he jumps up, takes his food out of the table, immediately goes back and starts working on his homework again. And they all end up rich because they've come from these places where they realize there is no potential. And I get all these clowns over here going on about, oh, socialism this and socialism that. Look, I've lived in those countries. I've worked in those countries. No one is saying anywhere in the world, if I could just break into Venezuela, everything would be wonderful, right? The country, they still talk about doing that and all the people around the world want to come to to get their best shot is the United States. It's uh, going to the same uh, concept. Omar, me and him were talking about when you walk into the Middle East and restaurants here, mm-hmm. you will see the wife, mm-hmm. the dad, yeah. the grandfather. Yeah. You look in the back and yeah. there are the kids and you see some books. They're yeah. either, either they're doing the homework. Yeah. You'll hear them get yelled at to pick up the plates and all yeah. that. It is the same mindset. And the thing is, like, we want to bring again uh, up uh, more and more and more. We keep going. It's like me and Omar were talking about why us even as a culture, foreigners in general that come in, immigrants in here, but especially with us Arab Americans, you don't see us walking down and protesting and all this. I was like, no, I need to make money. Or what am I protesting against here? I I agree. I lived in multiple countries. I lived in Europe and the Middle East. And I think a lot of people that come to the U.S., including myself, of course, have seen the rest of the world and appreciate what the U.S. offers versus even Europe. I wouldn't be able to own a house in Europe. Impossible with taxation and stuff like that. So you start appreciating what you see here and no matter how things might seem bad we're st- still better than 90% of the world yes, and I think yeah. that's where the chance is that's where people don't understand the US they see something small minor as as horrible thing but if they left the world and even went to Europe they will see that was nothing in comparison so another random question what is a favorite weapon to carry not a gun weapon doesn't have because the next question is what's your favorite gun <laughs> so <laughs> Um, Whatever weapon is to hand when I need it, but the best weapon ever is what's between your ears. I mean, I've said this a million times. Uh, There's an old saying in special forces, a right man is dangerous with a pair of scissors. You know, and and people get in this fascination. If I carry this particular weapon, it'll take care of all my failings. And that's not true. You know, the the weapon is really irrelevant. It's the man who's operating it that makes all the difference. Of course. And uh, what is your favorite gun? Uh, out of everything I've used, if, if I'm talking what I would carry day to day for protection, obviously there's rifles, which aren't practical. Uh, it's always going to be a Glock. Uh, and I've, you know, and goddamn, we probably shouldn't say that because it's religious. There's the people who favor the 1911s and the M&Ps and the Smith & Wessons and whatever. You know, all guns are different. This is why we have so many different types of cars and so many different colors of clothing, right? We're all personal. We all have our choices. But I have said this 
this about my martial arts. I'll say it about my weapons training. I'm a whore. I do not have an allegiance. What I've found over the years is people, usually in the South, they run into the 1911 fanatics, right? And why is that? Because my Diddy carried one in, in World War II, okay? So because dad carried it and says it's the greatest gun since sliced bread, right? Junior is going to run with that and so is his kid and so is his kid and so is his kid. I don't get into that. I don't get glommed onto a martial art because I started doing karate, therefore karate is the best thing in the world and nothing else will ever match it. I'm working on a nightclub door. I need techniques that will save my ass and I need them right now. And if it if a left hook from boxing is better than the roundhouse kick from karate, then I'm going to use the left hook from boxing because it's going to save my butt. So when it comes to guns, I have been in the Legion. In the Legion, we carried the FAMAS at the time. They've recently changed. We cross-trained in every comblock weapon because we knew if the Russians came, we'd be shooting them and picking up their AKs. So we had to know how they worked. Uh, so we did that with all the weapons. You get cross-trained in special forces with pretty much everything and so I don't have a particular affiliation with any weapon but out of everything I've shot I keep coming back to the Glock uh, it's drop saving I can throw that thing four feet in the air with you know chambered and locked it hits the ground nothing happens I can throw it in a creek it can sit in the mud it can sit in the snow I mean nothing stops that damn thing from running and every shooting course I've been to and every shooting course I've run I can't think of a time I've seen a malfunction now I know it has happened I've seen the picture online. Look at this. This is a Glock that broke. But goddamn, the so-called wonderful SIGs, I see those things stop and stop and stop and stop again during classes. And, and again, I have no affiliation. I'm not paid by Glock. I'm not paid by SIG. I don't have a preference. I'm not marketing one over the other. I'm just saying what I see. And other friends of mine, Greg Elifritz, Richard Nance, guys like this that teach, Tom Givens, if you ask them, you'll see the same stuff. They'll talk about the ones they see repeatedly screwing up and it's almost never Glock. So, oh, my turn. My phone is buzzing with the questions. I got a question, actually, and I'm going to put her name on here. It's your student, Ashley. <laughs> she okay. asked a question from California wow. and saying, what is your greatest fear? Oh, failure. Absolutely. And hands down failure. I, I don't want to end up under a bridge one day with a cardboard sign saying, you know, need help. Please give me money. Uh, I'm huge on achieving maximum potential. I was saying this to my students the other day. Why is it that I am concerned with their potential and they seem to be concerned with their limitations? And it frustrates the shit out of me that man is about the only thing in nature that never tries to be the best he can. If you look at trees, if you look at wild animals, everything wants to be the biggest, baddest version of itself it possibly can be. And a man is content to reach about 20% of what he's capable in cities, fat ass on a couch and watch Game of Thrones and eat pizzas and say, I'm done. And that irri irri irritates, irritates the shit out of me that there are people doing that and I get really frustrated when I see a guy in a wheelchair doing a triathlon and I see some able-bodied prick who's 300 pounds overweight sitting on his couch watching TV and that annoys me and I just hope I never fail that's that's my single biggest fear is failure or your success would you have a four daily habits that you do in the morning or rituals during the day uh, drink coffee is number one because I'd be dead without it. Number number two, I'm about to put out another book. Um, it's, it's not the next one. It's going to be probably early next year. It's going to come out. You got about four books in the line. I've got about eight or nine in the pipeline. The next one coming out is on goal setting, which we can talk about because it's going to blow goal setting out of the water the way it's being currently taught, which is useless. Otherwise, we'd all be skinny, happy, and rich, and married to the woman of our dreams, right? Um, no, I'm doing one. I'm doing one on what I learned looking after billionaires, all these rich people, you know, because originally I had no desire to be rich. I was going to be the warrior poet, you know, and have a bowl of rice and go around the world with a pair of chopsticks and teach martial arts and get fed by my students. And then I started bodyguarding rich people and I'm watching the way they live. And, you know, I'm, I'm being crammed into a jet flying from Moscow to St. Petersburg with there's no carpet on the floor of the plane and we've got cold beetroot soup and it's just miserable and then I go and get in a private jet and you don't have to stand in the crowds you 
don't have to wait for TSA or whatever. You go into the private suite in Hillingdon in London near Heathrow, and we go out and walk up the steps into a Gulfstream 5 or whatever and fly wherever. You're not beholden to anybody or anything. And I thought, this is nice. And you're living in these five-star resorts. And you said, okay, I want to be like this. Well, I decided to put together a book about the things I learned watching those guys because I'm their shadow. I mean, I'm with them 24-7. I'm listening to their business deals being made. I'm watching how they live. I'm watching what they do. I'm watching how much sleep they get. I'm watching their work worth work ethic. And the biggest thing I see about those guys, hands down, number one, the biggest thing I see is they are avid readers. And the biggest difference I see is rich people have massive libraries and little or no TVs. And when I go to poor people's houses, they have a giant TV and a little or no library. And if you look at Warren Buffett, he reads five hours a day, Bill Gates, five hours a day. And people go, well, yeah, they can because they've got all this money. And it's like, no, it's the other way around. They read first, which is why they've got all the money. Oh, and people always want to flip that. And they'll come home and sit in front of the average American watches four hours of TV a day. And they go, I don't have time to read five hours a day. Well, you've got four hours right there. You could be reading and playing catch up. So reading is huge. Um, taking care of your health is huge. You know, it was actually one of the uh, Jordanian that I looked after. And he showed me one day, he was, was talking very educated in England. So his English was very good. And he wrote down this number one, followed by this great big string of zeros and said, do you know what this is? And I said, how much money you've got in the plane? And he said, no. He said, that one represents your health. And he said, if you take that one away, you got nothing. Because his father had just ended up having a stroke and was in a wheelchair. And he realizing all that money meant nothing. Uh, so health is very important. Reading knowledge. You know, here's, here's my mantra. I'll give it to you. I say this to myself every single day. I meditate with this every single day. Every day I will increase my net worth and my knowledge, improve my health and inspire those around me to do the same. And that's it. And that's staying healthy, reading, meditation. That's it. And, and reach your potential. Drive for it. On the topic of reading, Omar, as you're a student of our organization, um, in Warriors Craft curriculum that I hand to you guys, yeah. um, you actually, you made that comment. And a couple of the students said, I never did a martial arts program that forced me with a reading list. I was like, is that forcing bad? They're like, no, but you handed us. Yeah. And it wasn't just like, oh, here's my coach's book. Read it. But you've seen the list we've yeah, put. List. And we do written tests and that and it's not about because we want to know how good you punch and kick it's about you read but there's another thing we want our students it's just like from nick sees how he brings that to me and how we bring it down to students we want to see them growth and it's not about punching and kicking and choking and grappling and well, that, that brings up a really interesting point one of the things i've seen training and you know i've got background in judo jiu-jitsu aikido wing chun filipino martial arts unarmed combat professional boxing military unarmed combat, et cetera et cetera one of the things I see, tra and I've traveled all the time I go to these places, like when I was in St. Petersburg for six months bodyguarding Peter Max and his art exhibition, I trained up there with the local Russians doing karate and wrestling and everything else. I had one of the translators go with me. So I see this crap all around the world, trained in England, France, Germany, all over. And what I see again and again and again and again is an instructor whose ego prevents him from producing a student that can kick his ass. So now he makes his student, let's assume for the sake of the argument, his student is 90% of the instructor, right? He can never beat the instructor. He always does. You know, what I used to tell my students is a joke. I've taught you everything you know. I haven't taught you everything I know. So you keep that student at 90%. Now he goes out and opens up a school and he's learned from you that I don't give you everything. I'm going to keep you at 90%. So his students are now 90% of him yeah. and they go out and open up a school and their students are 90% of their founder yeah. right now five generations later where are we how if you take the fifth generation student and compare him to the founder of the system right it's watered down and this is what we see with all these martial arts what's happened to karate in this country right okay, so it's a joke fuck. it's a joke compared to what it was originally yeah. compared to what it is nowadays it's a joke it's become watered down we laugh about it right McDojo's it, it's just a facsimile of what it was I mean it looks ridiculous when you go in there and look at it compared to what it used to be it's a joke yeah. and this is why now my goal is I want to produce students who can kick my ass but more importantly instill in them the importance of doing that with their students Yes. now if I did that in my system five generations from now how strong is my system 
it's incredible. Absolutely. It's going to be stronger than what I came up with, you know, because my student can beat me and his student can beat him and his student can beat him. So God, five generations. So now that guy's a God of fighting. He's absolutely amazing. And the system has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. But what do we do? Ego gets in the way and these pricks water it down. And that's the biggest crime I see in martial arts all over the place, which is why we have this proliferation of McDojo shit where these guys can't fight their way out of a wet paper bag. That actually answers a question, right? That I had, um, somebody, sent me the question it was a random Instagram follower and it was like I read a lot of these great things about Nick I see what you guys do in Warriors Academy KC why is the organization not spread all over the United States I was I was going to reply but I was like I'm going to leave it to Nick Hughes because he already said it here why and my reply to it were picky as fuck yeah I, it, it's I'm not a too, yeah it's not a money thing I mean I could turn around tomorrow and throw up the usual hey pay us this we'll come and train you in a weekend and you can launch a school and the guys that are doing that it's just a numbers game they're all they're interested in is money their people can't fight their system doesn't work they don't care they're padding their bank account that's all they give a damn about it's like these schools that are on every corner they're making three I went to a seminar once it was how to make a hundred thousand dollars a year teaching martial arts I said I wish right and the guy was lambasting people that are in a basement with six students and uh, you know he's saying we did market research people don't like getting hurt they don't like sweating they don't like working hard they don't like sparring they particularly like sparring they hate, hate sparring and they want a black belt and he said so we did that we give them black belts we don't spar they don't spar till they're brown belts blah 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 and I stood up and I said isn't that a little bit like saying that everyone that joins the military wants to be in special forces so they can be instead of having you know it's not for everybody you know we've always said out of every hundred people that join there's probably ten will get black belt and out of every ten of those one will get to second dan and out of every ten of those one will make to third dan and so on and it's kind of like a company right how many people join Walmart and how many people end up being the CEO it's a pyramid it has to be that way the military is the same how many generals are there and how many privates right it's this process you go through and I said you're saying that everyone that joins the army can be special forces and he said why not and I said because they'd no longer be special right and walked out of the room I left I said it's just a joke so yeah I'm not in it for money I'm very very picky who would join our organization and it's also partly me because I've been so busy with my projects getting the books out we're filming another online uni now that Paladin's closed down Um, I've got to come up with an operations manual which is how I think you know this is how McDonald's spreads their stuff right they have a McDonald's university they have an operations manual and that system enables you to have somebody else come in learn the system and replicate it which is why McDonald's burgers are the same all over the country right you can walk into any store it's going to be the same thing there's not going to be any change and I want our schools to be that way when we do expand that someone visiting San Diego can walk into the San Diego Warriors Craft School and get the exact same program the exact same level of training and that's going to take time to build that up and I have to design the operations manual first and it's just finding time to do all that on that same topic I want to share this with our audience and you Omar um God, a couple of years ago, years, years ago, we were in this um, supposed Krav Maga instructor training. I was with Nick and two other guys from the, um, the crew. And I will remember this. I saw everybody was doing their training and te- it was teacher training. It was just awful. Not, not like how, because Nick, when he does the teacher training, is teaching the teacher to teach. He knows you can do the movie. He knows you guys have been training. So that's not the issue. Long story short, we sat and the whole time they're trying to selling us how to do kickboxing and how to do kids program, whatever. And I remember I was sitting by Nick and Nick said, this is bullshit. And, and right out, he said, I'm doing an adults program. And I will never forget that guy looking at Nick and he's like, you go broke. You guys are going to be broke. Looked at us. You guys are going to be broke. And he's like, really? He's like, we'll see. Guess what? Well, we got what, 100% adult program system? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a fallacy that, you know, a lot of these schools have switched now and everyone knows they're just giant daycare centers. Yeah. And the kids don't stick. They join when they're eight. They're fascinated by the time they're 13 and they've met girls and they're doing lacrosse or something else and they're gone and they just take generation after generation of five to six year old. I mean, they've got to have three year olds in their classes as little dragons and whatever to survive financially. And they're doing what the parents should be doing, you know, character development, do your homework, clean your room or you can't get your belt. That's actually the parent's job. But it's a it's a business model that's absolutely working for them. And I've always argued, no, there are plenty of adults that want to learn self-defense. And what I see the problem is, is a, a serious adult, like, you know, ex-special forces, military, law enforcement, 
horseman or someone who's switched on and has a clue does not want to walk into a school with Barney the Purple Dinosaur drawn on the wall and a birthday party going on in the background and he's trying to do front kicks next to an eight-year-old who's doing triple back somersaults and he's wearing pajamas. He wants somewhere serious. So I said, yeah, I absolutely believe it's viable to teach adults and that's what we do. I do. I have now got a teen program and it's 12 years old and up because a lot of these kids, that's the age they start getting bullied and we have pretty much the same training. The only reason they're separate from the adults is because of the size disparity. There's not any difference in the program per se. So another question we got was, if they want to learn self-defense, somebody has no background and they decide that they don't feel safe and they want to learn self-defense, which discipline should they go to, whether it's martial arts, first of all, and which one? Uh, There's many disciplines. and Or go purchase a gun, shoot at the range, and be sufficient with a gun. Uh, well, that was a question. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a multiple question. Let me yeah. try and tackle it a piece at a time. Read the martial arts, which one should they do? It's a pretty hard question to answer because I could say do Warriors Crab, but we're not everywhere. What's in your town to start with? You know, if you live in somewhere like LA, you have a plethora of martial arts to choose from. If you live in bumfuck Egypt, good luck. You may have one guy locally teaching boxing at the YMCA. So you're kind of limited. Um, I would say this, you want the five criteria we talk about. Number one, check the instructor's background. You know, is he qualified to teach self-defense? Because there's no law in this country. There's no background check. There's no license you get to be qualified as a self-defense instructor. So sadly, any bozo the clown can walk out and hang a shingle and go, I'm a self-defense instructor. And God, you've only got to look at YouTube to see some of the jackassery out there to realize what's going on. And sadly, the guy who doesn't know anything about self-defense, has no idea that that's BS until he gets some training and some of them still never figure it out. So you want to check your instructor's background. You want to see are they how are they training mindset because that's the single most important part of self-defense. Ask the instructor how he teaches mindset and watch them go blank because they don't know how and they don't even know what it is. Uh, are they teaching soft skills? And that's the 75% of self-defense that avoids you ever getting in conflict in the first place. Are they teaching the legal ramifications of the techniques they're teaching you? Because there's a very famous story in uh, Filipino martial arts. This kid had learned all these multiple ways to desanguinate a human and flens the flesh from his bones that the Filipinos are famous for teaching, but they didn't teach this kid responsibility. They didn't teach him integrity and they didn't teach him legal. Uh, he was in a bar in New York. The bouncer went, and this is on the news. You can look up the story. The bouncer went to remove the two kids because one of them was smoking. And it was right when New York had just passed their law about not smoking in bars. And a kid pulls out his knife and slices this bouncer up and the bouncer dies. The kid got life in prison. I ran out of the bar to his instructor's house crying and saying, I think I screwed up. And I I hold the instructor responsible. I'm kind of sad the parents didn't go after or the kid didn't go after and sue the instructor Mm -hmm. for failing to teach him the responsibility that goes along with how do you take a knife and carve a human being to pieces. So self-defense wise, you want to be looking for those. Do a lot of research online. You know, go for what you should be looking for. There's some people out there that should know better um, that are, you know, clearly clueless when you look at what they're teaching. Um, Look for that. Now, on the gun thing, should I just buy a gun and carry a gun? Thank God we are reaching a point. I was talking with Fraz earlier about this. When we started martial arts, you weren't allowed to go and train at another martial arts school. You would be you would be tart and feathered and kicked out of your school if you did it. If they, if they found out that, you know, I was doing Goju karate and I went down and trained at the Shotokan school, that would be I'd be kicked out of Goju. You couldn't do it, right? You had to stay in your own organization. You weren't allowed to compete in a tournament. If you were in Taekwondo, you couldn't go and compete in a Japanese karate tournament and so on. We've reached a point now and these kids are spoiled rotten for choices because they can go to a seminar in Krav today. They can go to a Filipino seminar tomorrow, a jiu-jitsu seminar the week after that, MMA the week after that. can go from everywhere. The shooting and martial arts world, we're now finally bridging that gap where for years and years and years, you had naive martial artists running around. I don't need a gun. I do karate. And you have a bunch of jackasses on the other side. Like, I don't need that chop shocky shit. I carry a gun. Okay. And thank God they're now starting to realize that you have to do both. If you look at SF... Right, you go to the Navy SEALs, you look at the damn Delta Force, SAS, GIGN, GSG9, you know, any of these groups around the world, all those guys do unarmed combat and shooting. 
So why if the Navy SEALs have figured it out and Delta have figured it out and the SAS have figured it out and the Legion's figured it out, why can't these clowns figure it out that a gun is not the answer all on its own? You have to have both. So the training in the in the military is done because if you're taken prisoner, you're not going to have your gun, right? Uh, if you're doing house-to-house shit and you come around the corner and the guy jumps on top of you, you can't access your gun. So you need some empty hand skills. And now we've got people like my friends, Kelly McCann, Greg Elifritz, Rich Nance, me, uh, Cecil Birch, Paul Sharp. These guys have figured out, uh, Shane Gosa, these guys have figured out you have to have both. There are times when a gun is the perfect solution and there are times when empty hand is the solution. And I was telling Fraz this story the other day. I was at a gun show with a martial arts shirt on and some guy's like, I'll just shoot you. And I said, I'll meet you tomorrow morning at the airport. And he's like, well, you can't carry your gun at the airport. And I'm like, yeah, that's a clue. All right. And, <laughs> and a post office and a bank and a federal building and a school and in Maryland and in New Jersey and New York and California and all of Europe. And, you know, start. So what are you going to do? You're going to your gun is your self-defense. So you're going to limit yourself to staying the rest of your life in North and South Carolina. Right. And only hanging around places that you can carry it and use it. And even then you can't. Ninety nine percent of bullshit fights. Uh, you know, the guy grabs your shirt. Right. And pushes you around the room and gets angry because you spilt beer on him. What are you going to do? Pull your gun out and shoot him. I mean, this is it with a gun. It's like literally that it's like I don't do anything or I go to full on lethal force. And on the force continuum, which is a term we use to discuss the various levels of force. And for the uninitiated, it's taught in law enforcement. First level is psychological intimidation. Then comes verbal abuse. Then comes uh, passive unarmed resistance. So think of a protester sitting outside an abortion clinic. Then comes active unarmed resistance. So now the guy's trying to punch and fight and wrestle with the cops. Then there's armed resistance, right? Every one of those requires an appropriate level of force. So if I have some bum comes up and fights me in a bar, that's active unarmed resistance and I don't have the legal right to pull out my gun and shoot him dead and there's a guy in Florida who's just found this out I'm sure everyone's seen that clip it went national news right the guy in Florida with the gun he's got into a fight in the parking lot the person pushes him and he lands on his ass and pulls his weapon out and the guy's backing away with his hands up and he shoots him that guy's going away there's no two ways about it now if he'd had some unarmed skills right that would have been a boxing match in the parking lot and it all would have been over in a couple of seconds and done so so, yeah, we're reaching a point now, thank God, where martial artists are crossing over and learning how to use a weapon as part of their program. And shooters are now starting to get into unarmed combat and learning part of the program. And it's good to see. I just wish more of them would get it. It's going to be a long, hard slog, but it'll happen. Got a question from one of the Instagram followers, and it's, a, it's an interesting question, but I know your answer for that. So the question I get, if you could only choose one defense move you could teach, what that would be it? <laughs> Uh, again, again, that's a two-parter. Okay. One is the class I do on what I call SIVA, which is the soft skills, which is how to talk. Because fights very rarely, right? Now, they do happen, but very rarely are they ambushes. In other words, could I be standing at an ATM and a guy comes up behind me and hits me over the head with a brick to steal my money? Yes, that's an ambush, right? Talking's not going to get you out of that. But Seaver includes, and we'll talk about it in a second, Seaver includes other things like uh, situational awareness. So I'd be listening for that and try and stop. But most fights start, Omar made the comment before, nine minutes earlier, right? I don't know about the timeline, but most fights start way before that with the selection of the victim. So that could be you're looking at his girl friend in a bar, right? The bully at school's picking on the weak kid, uh, neighbors arguing over the fence, road rage, people flipping each other off in the car and they end up at the thing. So they get into this argument. If I can say something, and this goes into hostage negotiation, before SWAT teams start shooting people, they have negotiators come up and try and talk, talk it all down and calm it down. So we teach those same psychological principles, right, of de-escalation, verbal de-escalation. Because if I can say something that's going to make a situation worse, I can say something that's going to make a situation better. And every guy has seen this. You know, you walk into the bar and the guy's like, what the hell are you looking at? You were looking at my girlfriend. You want a piece of me? Right? All that crap, right? That initial thing 
thing. And it's all scripted. Guy says, you're looking at my girlfriend. You say, no, I wasn't. Next thing out of his mouth is what? You're calling me a liar, right? So now where do you go? You're stuck between a rock and a hard place. No, I, no I'm not calling you a liar. So you were looking at my girlfriend or I am calling you a liar. Boom, I get punched in the face. So there are things you can say to make that all go away. All right. And we teach that. So I think my number one weapon, and if I had one move, it would be how I run my mouth. All right. Now, if they're talking absolutely about, nah, that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear a physical move. That's awesome. There is only one physical move. Okay. That is 100% guaranteed to work every single time. And I've had this debate with people. A lot of people don't understand. They've never, they've never thought this through. They've never. And now they start coming in. Oh, left hooks, front kicks, shotguns, right? <laughs> no. Okay. I've punched people and I haven't knocked them out. I have seen people run over with a car who've got up and kept fighting. I've seen people hit with iron pipes. There was a Yugoslav guy in a bar fight at a place called Pinocchio's where I was in Australia. He got hit by a Mexican across the head with a short weight bar and his skull was I could see the skull bone fragmented and I could see the dura matter of his brain. Wow. And he turned around to the guy that hit him with the pipe and said, you try kill Misha, Misha kill you and went for it. (laughs) I've seen people in the military shot who kept fighting. Look at some of the guys we've got back here in this country after all the trouble overseas, right? There are stories of guys shot 24 times, yes. grenade fragments in them, RPGs have been blown up with IEDs on the side of the road. They've got up and they keep fighting. Well, They've lost their legs. They keep fighting. They lose their arms. They keep fighting. There are people in World War II who fell out of planes that were shot down without parachutes. Seriously, 12,000 feet out of the tail end of a Lancaster bomber in World War II landed in a snowdrift and got up and walked home. You shared a video of the prisoner that got stabbed, what, 80 yeah, times? Yeah, oh, 100 and something times. How? So so what's, what's going to stop people? If people can be shot, run over with cars, hit with trucks, gassed, grenaded, RPG'd, IED'd, and thrown out of flames without a parachute, and nothing stops them, right? What's the, what's the technique that's going to stop? Your gun isn't going to do it. I know, you tell me your gun's going to do it. I'll show you someone that's been shot that kept going. I've been stabbed 13 times. I'm still here. Right? So, so the question, what is the one? What do you, what are you, what are you think it is? I think run. I think run too. No, run sucks. We'll talk about running in a minute. Running's, okay. running's bullshit. Running's complete bullshit. I hate it when people say it. Nike uh, foo. It pisses me off. And we'll get and remind me to answer that one. Oh, we got yelled at by the way, see? Now we're going to get scolded. Yeah. There's, there's, there's only one technique. It works 100% of the time. Every time you do it on whoever you do it on, they can't stop it. It's a, it's a sleeper. Oh yeah. I oh, have never put shit. a sleeper. I, mean, I, think about I have <laughs> never put a sleeper on someone yes. that it has knocked out. Because the oxygenated blood has to get carried into the brain and you cut it off, they go out. I it's like tell the woman this shit all the time. I was yeah. like, fuck on bars, choke them out. I'm like, can't believe yeah. It's the only technique that one hundred percent works out. I've never seen anyone get choked with that thing in a bar Absolutely. fight, right? Who has resisted it? You can't. No. If you if it's on, right? If it's applied, yeah. you're done. You're going to sleep. We, we it's only two weeks week? ago. I did that choke week. Yeah, yeah you you went to bed. Oh, I just looked and he got choked. So I, I could turn around and shoot someone and they keep coming. But if I put that on you, you're going out. If you guys want to get in touch with us, um, we're going to put this up. We're going to also put, uh, get in touch with uh, Nick, uh, yeah. put your email up. Yeah. And I got a feeling we're going to break this in two parts because we talk yeah. a lot. But uh, we'll put I all the information. <laughs> but that's not going to be the first or the last time we're going to have Nick here. So look forward. Actually, um, we're going to be bringing him back once his um, new books are coming out. So that's going to be, yes. uh, I'm looking forward to it. Of course. And if you're in the Kansas City area, we have an event coming up on the October 20th. 27th, yes. Which is uh, Domestic uh, Violence Awareness Month. Yep. Uh, we're doing a fundraiser for uh, Rosebrook. Yes, Rosebrook's. Uh, Rosebrook's. And uh, it's a lot of uh, good training at noon. So check it out. Check on our Instagram pages. If you're in the area, come definitely come to it. You don't want to miss it out. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. Nutrithority. No bullshit high quality supplements. Warrior Culture Gear custom designed and hand printed apparel. Made by and for the modern warrior. Modern warrior. Warrior Fuel. Kansas City's best pre-made healthy meal delivery plan. Feed the warrior in you.